You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. You may be seated for the reading of God's Word. Today we're going to be reading from from 1 Samuel chapter 16, uh, verses 6 and 7. That will be found on page 238. In the Bible is found in, in the pew. Um, if you do not have a Bible, please do take one with you. That is our gift to you. Hear now the word of the Lord. When they came, he looked on Eliab, on, on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Our gospel reading today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verse 25 through 34. You can find this on page 811 in your pew Bible. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. 
Once more, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. Good to see you. For those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. Glad you're here. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. Now, by way of orientation, we are in the season of Epiphany, where the church around the world and throughout history contemplates the identity of Jesus. And in the midst of this season, we are asking the question, what does the identity of Jesus have to do with our own identity? And we are learning along the way that the new identity that Jesus offers is an identity that requires practice. The old self dies hard. The new self requires practice. And each week, we're examining a place where we tend to source our old identities. And we're examining how the gospel offers us something new, better, healthier, more stable, more robust, more secure. And the headings for these, the weeks through this series kind of go like this. You are not what you do. You are not your body image. You are not your sexual appetite. You are not how much money you have. You are not what people say about you. You are not your own. Last week was you are not what you do. Next week is you are not your sexual appetite. This week, today, is you are not your body image. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that right now the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As I get old, I'm in danger of repeating stories. Some of you have heard this story. I'm going to repeat it anyway. Uh, Sixth grade was my least favorite year. Any sixth graders in the room? I love you. I have a soft spot for sixth graders. Sixth grade was the worst year for me. If you're having a bad sixth grade, come talk to me. We will, we will commiserate together. Sixth grade was my least favorite year because that was the year I had this massive growth spurt. I grew inches and inches taller in height, but I did not gain any weight or muscle uh, to go along with the height. Skinny would be a kind word, but words like scrawny or string bean or emaciated might be more accurate. Um, sixth grade was the year I became self-conscious about my body. And it all started when some friends, it might be more accurate to call them former friends, uh, created a new nickname for me. They started calling me Chicken Wire. Isn't, that's what every sixth grade boy wants to be called, right? So, and I have this painfully clear memory of being dropped off for school. And as I got out of my mom's car and walked towards the front door of the school, seeing a gang of boys waiting for me at the door, beginning to chant. It's like a scene out of a terrible, like, B-rated movie. Like, chicken wire, chicken. I just didn't want to go to school. I didn't want to get out of bed. I just didn't want to be around other people. And this is before the language of body shaming or bullying kind of entered our common vocabulary. And it did not occur to me to look to teachers or other adults for help because some of them thought it was funny too. And I, when I raised my hand in class to answer a question, this is, I had one teacher call on me and sort of look at the other students in the class and smirk and then say, yes, chicken wire. And I just wanted to sink into a hole and disappear forever. <laughs> I tried wearing baggy clothes. Fortunately, it was the 90s. Baggy was in. Uh, it didn't work. I tried drinking protein shakes. I tried doing push-ups in my bedroom before I went to sleep at night to build muscle. Nothing worked. I just had to wait to outgrow that awkward phase. And I hope that none of you have any idea what I'm talking about. It just sounds like a strange, oh, so weird, feeling self-conscious about your body. How odd, I can't relate to that. Unfortunately, I've talked to a few of you over the years, and I know that you've had these experiences too. 
And we wished together that these experiences were just funny, awkward stories about the terrible adolescent teenage years, but they're not. The anxiety that we feel about our body image doesn't go away as we age. It just evolves, it gets normalized, and then it shows up in all kinds of seriously harmful ways. Let's define some terms here. When we say body image, what we mean is the way you and other people think about and conceive of what your body looks like. Body image exists in the mind. It's different from your actual physical body. Approximately 15, uh, sorry, 85% of men and 91% of women are unhappy with their body image and use diet or exercise or other things to attempt to achieve their ideal body shape. Side note, I would really love to meet the 15% of men and 9% of women who are happy with their body image. I think they would be fun to talk to. I've never met many of them. Unfortunately, only 5% of women possess the body type that is often portrayed by Americans in the media. And just as an aside, Rachel and I this past week watched the Barbie movie, and we just laughed together at the absurdity of the stereotypical Barbie figure. Like, is any woman actually shaped that way? Of course not. Every study has found that the more visual media content you consume, and that includes movies, TV shows, social media, Facebook, TikTok, etc., the value you place on physical appearance goes up, while your satisfaction with your own physical appearance goes down. Those graphs go like this against each other. So 2024, we're all making New Year's resolutions. If you want to feel worse about yourself this year, just spend more time online, okay? The American Society for Aesthetic Plastic Surgery found that 40% of women and 20% of men would consider plastic surgery at some point in the near future. Over 10% of Americans use Botox or dermal fillers or enzyme peels to counteract the natural effects of aging. And an estimated 9% of the U.S. population, which is roughly 30 million people, will have an eating disorder at some point in their lifetime. And these numbers were shocking to me, especially this next one. There are over 10,000 deaths every year that are a direct result of eating disorders. That's one death every 52 minutes. So by the time this worship service is over, another person in the States will have died of an eating disorder. The economic cost of treating eating disorders in the U.S. is over 70, uh, sorry, 64 billion every year. So if you're one of those people who like looked at the sermon title printed in the liturgy and sort of heard the beginning of this introduction, you thought body image, isn't that kind of like a shallow conversation topic for a sermon? This is an everybody problem. This is literally killing people and it's wreaking havoc in the lives of those who are living. And so to the sad story of our body image anxiety comes a different story, a counter-narrative, if you will, the biblical story. It begins in creation. God makes our bodies, and what does he call them? He calls them good. Psalm 139 expresses this. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. But then through what Christians call the fall into sin, our bodies begin to fall apart and die. And not only that, but beauty can now be weaponized to deceive, which is why Proverbs 31 has this phrase, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. Charm was not originally designed to be deceptive. Beauty was not originally designed to be fleeting, but it is now because all has been corrupted by sin. But through the redemption that Jesus brings and through union with him and baptism, our bodies are no longer something that we possess. Our bodies don't belong to us anymore, which is why 1 Corinthians chapter 6 reads, don't you know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit 
who is in you, who you've received from God, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And all of this looks forward and anticipates the new creation hope that we have, the new resurrection of our bodies. Romans chapter 8. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. Listen, the point is, the reason why we trace this theme through creation, fall, redemption, new creation is because we never build any aspect of Christian theology from one text. We search the whole of the scriptures, and when there is a consistent theme from Genesis to Revelation, then we crystallize and solidify that theme into principles and doctrine. And the two texts that were read this morning are right at the center of that theme. 1 Samuel chapter 16, the Lord sees not as man or not as humanity sees. Humans look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Matthew chapter 6, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about you, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And so to our body image obsessed age, we need to hear the comforting words of God. You are not your body image. And as we talk about this and explore it together, we're gonna talk about the inner self, the reality that each one of us has an inner self. And then we're gonna talk about the vanity shame cycle that so many of us get stuck in. And then we're gonna talk about freedom and how to be free from it. So the inner self, the cycle of vanity and shame, and then freedom. Let's begin with the inner self. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. That word heart in the original Hebrew is a word that means inner person, inner self. It's not talking, it's different. It's not, it's not talking about the organ that pumps blood. It's talking about the reality that there is a you inside of you that God sees, that other people cannot see. The heart in the biblical imagination is the seat of the affections. It's the place where desire and longing and love flow from. Later in the story, the prophet Samuel is going to find David, who is described as a man after God's own heart. And so inner beauty, according to the Bible, is having a heart that is like God's heart, a heart that loves what God loves, that, desire what God des that desires what God desires. And the text is saying that your identity flows from inside of you, what you love, what you desire, what you long for. And thousands of years later, the Apostle Peter actually picks up on this very same theme in the book 1 Peter chapter 3. He writes, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles, the wearing of gold jewelry, or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Point of clarity. Notice the text does not say, don't wear jewelry or don't wear nice clothes, or don't have cool hairstyles. Like those of you who went to the barbershop this week are thinking, ah, nuts. I, you know, I violated 1 Peter chapter 3. No, it's not saying you can't do these things. It's saying your beauty does not come from these things. Why? Because they are temporary. They fade. Rather, it says, let your beauty come from what does not fade, from the virtue and goodness of your inner spirit. So, if we're talking about inner beauty coming from the heart and we're talking about that being defined as having a heart that is akin to God's heart, then it's worth begging the question, what is God's heart like? The Bible describes it as steadfast love, constant, stable, unwavering, doesn't change, predictable, reliable. It describes God's heart as generous. God is the provider, the giver of all good gifts. It describes God's heart as pure, 
untainted, unmixed, focused, not easily distracted. Can your heart grow and change over time? Absolutely. Your heart can continue to grow and change for the better all throughout your life. You're never too old to love more deeply. You're never too old to become more generous. You're never too old to become more pure. But your body will peak and decline, right? So your spirit, your inner self might continue to grow up and up. It was not, not guaranteed to, but it may continue to grow up and up and to the right but your body will peak and decline, which means your spirit and your relationships can become more beautiful over time, but your physical attractiveness will not. We need two more points of clarity, what we're saying and what we're not saying. Talking about body image is fraught. Here's what we're not saying. We're not talking about just boosting everybody's self-esteem. We're not talking about just sort of an ethos or a culture of body positivity. That's actually not what we're saying. Neither are we saying that the body doesn't matter. We're not saying, we're, we're not proposing some sort of bizarre, oppressive purity culture where everyone, especially women, have to wear baggy clothes, no jewelry, no makeup because their appearance doesn't matter or their appearance is bad. No, we're not saying that at all. That's what we're not saying. Here's what we are saying. Identity is something that you cannot see. It flows from your inner person. It should be expressed in congruence with the body because the body always matters in the biblical imagination. But your body image cannot and should not be the source of your identity. Why? Because it only creates anxiety when you find identity that way. So let's talk about the vanity shame cycle. The text reads that man looks on the outer appearance, but God looks at the heart. And you know what the great tragedy is about that true sentence? is that both parts are true. God does look at the heart, but we don't. <laughs> we look at the outside. We worry about tomorrow. We worry about our bodies and our faces and our clothes and our skin and our muscles and our fat, and we just worry about our images. We worry so very much. Let's define what, we're, what we mean when we say vanity in regard to body image. Viewing our what vanity means when, in respect to your body image, it means viewing your body as clay to be sculpted in order to present your body as desirable to other people, as acceptable and approvable in other people's eyes. Most of us, when we make New Year's resolutions, like this is a made-up stat, like 80% of New Year's resolutions are about the body <laughs> and are about body image. I'm gonna lose weight this year. I'm gonna look good in a bathing suit this year. This is gonna be the year that I do it. The gyms are always full in January. For those of us who go to the gym year-round, January, it's annoying to go to the gym. So many other people are there, so many randos. And you're waiting in line for a machine and you're like, guys, let's be honest. You're not gonna keep doing this. So why don't you just leave and let me use the machine, right? <laughs> That's mean. What are we all there to do? If body image is a source of identity for you, then body image has become a kind of God. And what does that make the gym? It makes it a temple, right? As one person said, the gym was my church and my body was the object of worship. We've, we've talked about this before as a church over the years. There are no truly secular places. All places either have an element of the sacred or the profane. Gyms are deeply spiritual places where they're places of worship where identity is forged in the heat and sweat of a workout. 
And that kind of vanity does not only show up at the gym, it shows up in all kinds of places. It shows up in dieting. What I say next, you're going to be tempted to write off as a hot take. It's not a hot take. Let me offer it to you as a deep take, not a deep fake, a deep take, okay? A diet is a socially acceptable eating disorder. An eating disorder is a broken relationship with food. An eating disorder is an attempt to use food to control your body image, right? A diet is simply a socially acceptable eating disorder. Dieting, from a biblical point of view, is a broken relationship with food. And I don't say that to shame anybody who is either dieting or struggling with an eating disorder. I say it in order to tell the truth, in order to set you free. The rhythm of fasting and feasting is the biblical Christian gospel approach to food. Nobody says this better than Robert Capon in his book, The Supper of the Lamb. He writes, and he talks about man, but he really means humanity, okay? He writes, should a true man want to lose weight? Let him fast. Let him sit down to nothing but coffee and conversation. Let him not try to eat his cake without having his cake. Any cake that he could do that with would be a pretty spooky proposition. A little golden calf with dietetic icing. (laughs) No taste at all worth having. Let us fast as strenuously as we should. And then let us eat. Dieting is like black magic. Using food as a potion to transform your soft, pudgy body into toned sexual divinity. That's why dieting advertisements are all about transformation, right? The before picture and the after picture. Before, this person is fat and ugly. Nobody would love them. But then... They drank our $39 a pound mushroom kale tree bark smoothie. And now they do stand-up paddleboarding on the James River and this guy's girlfriend is 20 years younger than him, right? (laughs) Transformation. (laughs) Dieting to improve your body image may be good for your gut health, but it will rot your soul. Vanity shows up in exercise and dieting and clothes and fashion and makeup and social media. And I'm not going to, don't worry, I'm not going to go on a rant about social media, but it's getting worse as AI can now automatically add a layer of filter over your face to enlarge your eyes, enhance your cheekbones, and smooth out your skin. Most of these things that we're talking about, friends, are not evils unto themselves, but they are bent, misdirected, and misshapen approach to beauty because they are all forms of control, right? They are all forms of control. If I can control the way I look, then people will love me. Then I will know who I am, and who I am will be good. Dana Joya, poet laureate from the state of California, writes this sort of beautiful and also savage poem called Pity the Beautiful, in which he describes the problem with this dynamic. He writes, Pity the beautiful, the dolls and the dishes, the babes with big daddies granting their wishes. Pity the pretty boys, the hunks, the Apollos, the golden lads whom success always follows, the hotties, the knockouts, the tens out of ten, the drop-dead gorgeous, the great leading men. Pity the faded, the bloated, the blousy, the paunchy Adonis whose luck's gone lousy. Pity the gods, no longer divine. Pity the night, the stars lose their shine. What is this poem about? This poem is about how vanity is always closely followed by shame. 
Vanity is always closely followed by shame. What begins in the thrill of vanity always, always, always ends in the downward spiral of shame. And you might be thinking, well, that's true for some people if you fail to achieve your ideal weight or waistline or style. But actually, the reality is that shame is going to get you no matter how successful you are, whether you are the before or the after picture. The more you focus on your image, the more flaws you will discover and tend to see. Some of the most objectively, physically beautiful people in the world have the lowest opinion of their own body image. Why? Because it's all they think about, right? Trying to like, feel better about your body image by focusing on your body image is like trying to defeat a hydra by cutting off its head, right? You cut off a head, two more grow in its place, you cut those off, now you've got four, right? It just gets, the more you focus, the worse it gets. Long-term obsession with body image will often develop into something called body dysmorphia, Body dysmorphia is a mental health condition where people spend like inordinate amounts of time worrying about the flaws in their appearance, flaws that are largely unnoticeable to other people. As one famous supermodel stated, I started modeling when I was 13 years old, and since the beginning, I was always told that I had two big hips and thighs and that I should lose weight. I was never fat. I just have a larger pelvis and different bone structure from other typical models, and since then, I've always hated my body. I've realized this is a common problem which models have. I was chatting with other models who seemed to be even skinnier than me, and they all thought of themselves as fat. There's no escape from the cycle of vanity and shame because the more you focus on your image, the more flaws you will find. And all the while, are you getting younger? You are not. You are getting older. And isn't it true that after a certain age, you really shouldn't be trying to look sexy anymore? We all instinctively know somehow that there is something good about shifting towards words like dignity as you get older and away from trying to look sexually attractive to other people. In other words, there are few things more sad than an older person who is trying too hard to look young. Pop singer Madonna was recently praised as, quote, the most beautiful woman in the world, the hottest woman ever, after sharing sultry and suggestive photos of herself on Instagram. Madonna is 65 years old. Will there ever be an age when she is no longer trying to convince the world that she is sexually attractive? You know, my favorite scene in the Barbie movie was the one where Margot Robbie's character is sitting at a bus stop and on the other end of the bench is an elderly woman. And the physical difference between them is striking. One is the quintessential image of what our society calls beautiful. The other is the image that so many of us fear, physical beauty that has been lost to old age. And Robbie's character stares at the older woman and their eyes meet. And after a moment, she says, you're so beautiful. And the older woman smiles and says with confidence, I know it. <laughs> and after the first service, somebody came up to me and said, hey, do you know that the older woman in that scene is actually the daughter of the woman who invented Barbie and that Barbie, Barbie was modeled after her? That's Barbara. <laughs> I did not know, but that makes that, doesn't that make that scene so much better? <laughs> there is dignity and value and goodness to the elder years. And it's lost if you're always trying to look young. 
Listen, friends, the consequence of finding your identity in your body image is that it will trap you in the vanity-shame cycle. This is why all of the positivity self-esteem initiatives fail. They all fail. They will always fail. If you think this sermon is just about positivity and self-esteem, shallow therapy for shallow people, you're not paying attention. Our society has devoted billions of dollars into therapy to solve this problem, the cycle of vanity and shame, to boost self-esteem. Has it worked? It has not worked. We are more hyper-conscious and anxious about our bodies than ever before. You cannot feel better about your body image identity by thinking happy thoughts about your body image. It doesn't work. Other people's opinions and voices about your body will always be stronger than your voice. If the world says you're ugly, you cannot feel better by screaming louder that you're handsome or or you're pretty. Your voice isn't strong enough. Now, fortunately, your voice and other people's voices are not the only voices in the conversation. There is a third voice, and the third voice is the voice that brings freedom. The God who made your body and called it good, the God who took on a body to share in our embodied life, the God who sacrificed his own body to redeem your body, the God who promised you a resurrected new body, that is the God who has come to you in a body. In Jesus. And Isaiah 53 foretells of what the body of the Messiah will be like and what will happen to that body. Isaiah 53, 2 through 5. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The broken body of Jesus on the cross is the place where your broken body, image, identity, and anxiety, and stress, and vanity, and shame goes to die. You know why? Because the cross is ugly. Now, Jesus was not physically attractive. That's true, but this is much deeper than that. The cross is hideous. The cross breaks the human body. And yet the cross, even in its ugliness, is the place where God does what? He shows his love for us. The cross is where God shows us his heart, his inner self. The cross, therefore, breaks the vanity-shame cycle. The cross shows us the thing that we are all most afraid of, complete, abject humiliation, quickly followed by death. And yet, the cross is the very thing that redeems us. And so when you realize that the cross happened for you, and when you see it as an expression of love for you, then the cross becomes, strange as it might sound to say, the cross becomes beautiful. Perhaps the most beautiful symbol, perhaps the most beautiful image in the world. How can you see an image so physically broken and yet call that image beautiful? How can you see an image that is ugly and call that image stunningly beautiful? when you are not looking at the outward appearance, 
but with the eyes of God, you're looking at the heart. So through the gospel, God says to you, your body is good, but your body is broken. And one day your body will die. And so it is a mercy and a grace from God to you that you are not your body image in your eyes or in anybody else's eyes. Through the gospel, God says to you, my eyes see the real you. And the real you is the identity that you have in Jesus. And so when I look at you, I see someone beautiful. I see the beauty of the love of Jesus on the cross. And so through the gospel, God says, my eyes are the ones that carry the day. My eyes are the ones that matter. I'm the one that really sees. I see you, my child. I see you, my beloved. Alone, you're a train wreck, but in Jesus, you're enough. In Jesus, you are my child, you are beautiful, and you are free. And if you will allow it, and that word allow is important, if you will allow it, God's quiet whisper will grow louder and louder and stronger in your mind than the voices of others and even your own voice. And so the invitation for you this morning is to cooperate with the freedom that God has already offered to you and given to you. You cooperate with freedom in your practices, your decisions and your habits. Your practices and decisions and habits are either going to reflect an identity that is secure in your inner heart, your inner self, or an identity that is unstable because it's still riding the vanity shame roller coaster. To be clear, These practices that we're going to conclude by describing, they are not practices that create your identity. Only the work of Jesus in the gospel creates your identity. But there's a warning here. Believing just in your mind that you have a new identity in Jesus, while in your embodied life you go about practicing finding your identity in your body image with your habits, That disjunction is not going to produce the freedom that the gospel promises. You must cooperate with God. You must respond to the invitation. You must receive the gift, not just once, but every day. Practices connect the inner self to the outer body. Practices help you live with integrity. They help you live a congruent life. Practices, you might say, to use a theological word, are sacramental. Now, we're going to conclude by just naming a few suggested practices that help you live from your inner self that is redeemed by Jesus and not to practice an identity that is found in your body image, okay? So these are practices that are meant to help, that are meant to help you cooperate with God and cooperate with the gospel freedom that he has given to you. Practice number one, this is going to throw you for a loop. You didn't see this coming. Fast from mirrors. Some of you are like, I'm out, can't do it. Try it just for one day. Cover the mirrors in your house with paper or a towel. Listen, the antidote to your addiction to body image obsession is not to intentionally make yourself ugly or to hate your body or to think that it's not important to look good. Like, no, that actually does a great disservice to the wonderful body that God has given to you, that God made. No, the antidote to your addiction to body image is actually body forgetfulness. It's not thinking about it so much anymore. This is one reason why going on outdoor trips are some of the healthiest ways to detox from body image obsession. Fast from mirrors. Stop looking at yourself. It will be, listen, it will be impossible to break the habit of obsessing over how you look if you don't stop looking. Staring at a mirror and trying not to worry about how you look 
is like staring at pornography and trying not to feel lustful. At some point, you just need to put down the phone or the computer and walk away. Walk away from the mirror. Practice number two, fast from makeup or hairstyling products. Not forever, but take, set aside a 24-hour to 48-hour period and do an intentional fast and just see what happens and see if people treat you differently. You might just find out who cares about and is relating to your true self, your inner self, and who is simply relating to the image that you project to the world. Practice number three, simplify your wardrobe down to just a few items, almost creating something of an adult uniform for yourself, a few good pieces. And I say this speaking from just a little bit of personal experience. Wearing a black shirt and a clergy collar most days of the week has genuinely helped me be less body image conscious. Because when I am dressed as a priest, you know what's impossible? I cannot look cool anymore, right? And so it's not quite so tempting as it used to be, right? I have to give it up. When my clothes are for the most part the same every day, I am less likely to use clothes to express any kind of body image identity, right? Another practice, resist the impulse for cosmetic surgery. I know not everybody is tempted towards this, but unless you're recovering from burn scars or breast cancer or something like that, this one just needs to be moved off the table. Just not going to do it. Not going to use a knife to change your body. Another practice, fasting from social media. Or if you do post, post only what is real and resist the temptation to use filters to enhance your image. Another practice, compliment and comment on the words people say and the actions they do and not just on how they look, their clothes or their body. In doing this, you're helping other people practice a more stable identity and you're helping them resist finding their identity in their image. Another practice. In your exercise, go work out in comfortable clothes and not, quote, look at me clothes. You know what I'm talking about? Of course you do. Remember when your gym clothes used to be your bad clothes? Now your gym clothes are your most expensive clothes, right? (laughs) And as you think about how much time you spend exercising and working out, just ask yourself the question, is this bordering on vanity? Am I setting myself up for future same? Have I bought the lie that if I can achieve a certain level of, of kind of physical vigor, then I won't feel shame about my body anymore? It is a lie. Am I setting myself up for future shame by giving myself to vanity? And if you're not sure, if you're thinking about all these questions, you're thinking, I don't even know if I know myself well enough to tell whether I'm doing this or not. Ask somebody who will tell you the truth. Which brings me to the very last practice, which is an invitation for anyone who is struggling deeply with any of the things we've talked about this morning to talk to your small group leader or a member of our staff or a deacon or a priest of the church. We can only learn to leave our false identities behind with help from each other. This is not a solo journey. Listen, let me just reiterate this. These practices are not new rules or new laws. They are not absolutes. There are good times and good places to use mirrors and makeup and stylish clothing and posting online content, exercise, complimenting each other on the way they look. If you are a husband and you're thinking, I'm never gonna tell my wife she's beautiful ever again because that would feed her vanity, stop. Wrong takeaway. (laughs) These are suggested practices that may over time become habits that reinforce and strengthen your true identity. These are suggested means of potentially cooperating with God. And you know, 
as you cooperate in these practices, they actually help solidify the true identities of not just you, but other people. And this is where we end this morning. In a culture obsessed with image, to the point of finding our identity in body image, what a gift it would be if the church were the group of people in society who focused on the heart, who saw the inner self, who valued the inner person. This is part of what we mean when we say the missional presence of the church. Here at Redeemer, we say we are devoted to gospel formation for missional presence. The gospel forms us to be people who can be grateful for our bodies, good stewards of our bodies, while not obsessing over or idolizing our body image and who are able to resist the vanity-shame cycle. And so the gospel forms us to be people who then show up differently in the world. We show up as people whose identity is stable and secure and safe. And we need this from each other. And our neighbors need this from us. The city of Richmond needs this from us. The place where you find your identity has a tremendous impact on the well-being of the people around you. Does your presence, your presence, contribute to the insanity? Does your presence feed the vanity-shame cycles in other people? Or are you a calm and stable, secure, unthreatened presence? Are you someone who knows that their inner person is seen by God? And so you're someone who now begins to see as God sees. You're someone who now looks for the inner person, who looks at the heart. And as the gospel practices form you into this kind of person, you know what being around you is like? Being around you becomes just a little bit, maybe a reminder of what it's like to be around Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the bodies that you have given us, and we confess that our bodies are broken and are not what they are meant to be, and we grieve the fact that our bodies will die. Lord, would you help us to steward our bodies well? Help us to resist the temptation to find our identity in our body image. Help us to recognize that you see us as we truly are and that you value the inner person, the heart. Would you help us, Lord, to begin to practice this, not only in our own lives, but to help one another so that we together might become a people who are finding our identity together in you, that we might bear that calm and stable presence out into the world as your people. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.